From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. Networking starts with giving. That's the bottom line. The best networkers uh, that I've learned from and observed are there to give to others. And that's how they become really well known. Because now anytime that person calls, you're not thinking, oh, what does he want from me? You're thinking, oh, what does he have for me? On this episode of What the Job, I sit down with entrepreneur, investor, and master networker Arden Che. Arden works in finance as an investment manager with the venture capital firm Yaletown Partners. Arden and I chat about the talent scout side of investing, his work history that includes working on a cruise ship and in a casino, and how he became a great networker. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. What's your name and what's your job? Hi, uh, my name is Arden Jay. I'm an investment manager with Yale Town Partners, which is a venture capital firm uh, here in Canada, based out of Vancouver. Uh, but I, I'm here in Edmonton. You know, I hear venture capitalism a lot. I have no idea what it is. Can you enlighten me? What What is venture capitalism? Uh, venture capital is just another slice of the entire finance and investment management industry. Um, and really what venture capital does is it takes... Um, institutional money, so pension fund money, um, you know, schools, endowments, uh, those are typically the clients of venture capital firms. And those large institutions have to put their money somewhere to make a return. And often they will invest in a mix of different assets, so stocks, bonds, um, and then real assets like infrastructure, real estate, that sort of stuff. And that way they can generate a return for their clients, pensioners, etc., um, any sort of fund where they need some sort of uh, cash flow, uh, you know, or they have a cash liability further down the road. Venture capital is just another class of asset, which happens to be kind of earlier stage uh, and typically technology based uh, companies that are kind of high growth. It's kind of like the black sheep of the finance and investment industry because um, of, of a number of reasons, which I'll get into in a bit, but the idea is we, you know, we're, we're, it's a very high risk asset class because it is kind of, you know, early stage, younger companies haven't necessarily proven themselves out yet. Uh, they're on the rise, but there's still a lot of risk and uncertainty, but that's also what generates, you know, bigger return, kind of like the risk reward thing, right? The more risk you take, the more you can earn. Um, and it's not like more mature companies that you see in the, in the stock markets, uh, where you know um, you're looking at you know in public equities trying to gain an eight to twelve percent uh, return a year overall, venture capital uh, is a little bit more risky than that, maybe a lot more. But again, the whole idea is it's just one asset class to help these uh, clients diversify uh, their investments. And what what do you do? Because so it sounds to me like uh, a big part of this job. Then you're you're trying to identify companies that have the kind of potential for better return. Um, and then how, how does it work? I, I really am an outsider to the finance world. I have no idea. 
that's that's great. I mean, uh, that forces me to really. I think a lot of times, you know, when you're in any industry, you tend to take for granted that people you're talking to actually know what you're doing. Um, I'm reminded of that when I talk to my parents because they have no idea what I do still. And uh, I'm always trying to explain it to them in the simplest terms. But really, our job is to go out there and find these companies. Now, okay, let's say you, you know, as an investor, uh, let's say, or you want to, you know, put your, your money, your savings into something. So you might, you know, look at the stock market and you, you know, all this stuff is available on the internet. You can do lots of research and everything out there. But then the private markets, there's no listing. There's no directory of companies for you to look for and to just kind of pick from. And there's no open market where you can, you know, go in and buy the, the mutual fund or the ETF or the stock on the stock market. Um, this is about investing directly into these private companies. And so it's kind of uh, by hook or by crook, we find all kinds of different ways to find these companies, right? I mean, you, we, uh, as venture capitalists, we attend pitch events, you know, communities and economic development corporations will hold evenings devoted to bringing forth some of these early stage companies that will go out there and actually do a presentation so we can see where they are. And there's uh, all kinds of, the province has brought in a number of what we call accelerators. So there's kind of like boot camps for, you know, entrepreneurs. And at the end of it, there's usually a demo day. There's always a demo day, which is a demonstration day, right? And so it's like you get to go to see these um, startups that kind of graduated from the class and, uh, you know, see if, if what they're doing appeals to you. So that's, you know, kind of the outbound if you are a known venture capitalist, like in the tech community, a lot of times uh, deals will come to you if you've got a good reputation and people know who you are. Entrepreneurs will approach you. Um, we have a website so they can apply through there or it'll be referrals, uh, you know, going through a network. Um, investors will often make referrals to each other as well as entrepreneurs, uh, portfolio companies, entrepreneurs know each other. And so if an entrepreneur know someone else who's raising money, then they will, you know, they might say, Hey, you should talk to my investor. Uh, they might be able to introduce you and to others. So it's, there's all kinds of different ways for us to look for opportunities, but it's not by any means kind of cookie cutter. Um, some of our best companies were ones that were kind of operating outside of the startup community and either we happened upon them by accident um, or, you know, they just, it just kind of out of left field, you know, you wound up uh, running into them. So yeah, there's all kinds of different ways we find these companies and that's kind of what makes it fun as well. You never know where the next opportunity is going to come from. Yeah. Speaking of left field, it does, it reminds me of sports a little bit, trying to like scout mm -hmm. players and find mm -hmm. talent and find that like late round draft pick who's going to turn into a superstar. That's exactly it. We are talent scouts, right? And, you know, we are looking for those superstars that are, you know, potentially going to, uh, you know, get us to the World Series, right? And get us an outsized return. Um, we're not looking for, you know, folks that can do singles and doubles, right? Um, we are looking for absolute superstars. And that's a bit of a challenge. Um, another thing is, you know, we don't have a lot of, especially for like early stage companies. So when I say early stage, you can imagine, you know, you and your friends, um, graduated from school and you were working in a lab and you came up with this really awesome technology and decided you wanted to turn it into a company. You know, in those early days, you know, as you're testing it out, trying to find customers and see if you're solving a problem that customers are willing to pay for, there's not a lot of evidence yet, right? It's not like, you know, finding a Walmart or an Apple 
or a um, you know uh, a Costco where they've got histories of revenues, real sales. You can go to the store, you can see what they're doing. There's evidence, so it's a little bit more, um, I guess, well, like uh, prediction and and guesswork. A little bit more uh, under trying to uh, being a futurist, right? Really trying to understand where is this company headed. Uh, are they playing in a market that's really big, right? So we have to be able to, as as venture capital investors, have a really good imagination and a really good uh, understanding and grasp of where a society uh, and markets and economies are going in general. Um, and that's, like I said, that's a lot of fun. It's also about making, you know, knowing people. We have to be good judges of character. Uh, can this entrepreneur uh, actually get us to the finish line? There's a lot of guesswork, and quite frankly, in my experience so far, I've been in venture capital for just about four years now, uh, but I've also been in capital markets, uh, so in the investment management world, uh, for well over 15, 18 years, and you know, working in public equities, working in commercial real estate. So I've seen you know a lot of different types of investment scenarios, but in venture, it is a lot of. Um, I think uh, in any investment, there's a lot more guesswork than professionals like to admit. <laughs> I, I think um, that's a fair thing to say. But what matters is is that you have a what we all call an investment thesis. So what that is is just a framework, right? Um, I always say being a good investor means developing your own perspective of the world. You know, some of the best investors I learned from taught me that. And what that means is you have to figure out for yourself where you think value is going to come from, what's important to you. Every investor is different and they have different views of the world. People, we're all people, right? And so it's a, you know, it's a process of figuring out, okay, here's my rules. Here's my, my, my framework, right? Here's what I think is going to make money in the next 10 years. And you have criteria. And what you do is you invest based on that criteria and you try to stay as strict with that as possible generally. Um, and you can make some exceptions. Are you going to win all the time? Probably not. Uh, the odds are against it. But what having a framework allows you to do is to then work backwards and say, did that work? Right? Uh, what was it about it that I need to change? And it allows you to kind of experiment with your thesis. And that's another thing is you have to be willing to change the way you look at the world as the world changes. Right? The economy uh, went underwent a massive shift this year. And, you know, for many years, I was trained as a value investor, and I've had to kind of basically change the way I look at the world and where value is going to come from simply because of the changing interest rates. It's, I'm not going to get too technical about that, but the point is it's like a religion. You know, um, Everybody's got one. You're right if you make money right? <laughs> at the end of the day. It's interesting to hear you talk about <clears throat> the different aspects involved, like the social aspects, because I, I think from my outsider perspective, if I thought about investment as a as a job or an investment manager, I would think it's mostly like spreadsheets and, and math. Uh, that's the foundation of it, right? I mean, and remember I said there's different schools of thought when it comes to investing, right? Uh, and, you know, there's a reason why a lot of big investment managers uh, out there will have multiple strategies because at different times in the market, different things may work. Right. And again, I don't know that anybody can say 100% that they're always right and that their way of investing works every time. But what they have is a system that works for them and allows them to think about the world in a certain way. And um, 
even in, like for stock market, you know, I mean, there's a big part of it that is quantitative analysis. I mean, even you, you know, you've got to understand how to read financial statements and kind of figure out, okay, where's the company headed? A financial statement will tell you a lot of things about a company's financial health and its operations. But at the end of the day, you've also got to make a call on the CEO and the executive team and what you think. I mean, case in point right now, um, at Walt Disney, at Disney, they just announced that Bob Iger, their former CEO, is coming back to the company. That was just announced um, on Sunday night, last night. Big surprise to the markets. Uh, he had been Disney CEO for 15 years and kind of left it in the hands of the of the of, of the guy that he had picked. And you know, without getting into too much detail, what happened was a lot of people were really excited because Bob Iger was a fantastic CEO. But then when you kind of dig into it, there's analysis coming out, you know, questions like, well, if he was that good a CEO, how come he wasn't able to have a, you know, groom a successor? How come, you know, uh, and, you know, the, there were factors like COVID, there was all kinds of, and so there is a focus on, okay, what are the qualifications and track record of this CEO? Uh, and the people that are working around him. So there's a qualitative aspect to it as well. Uh, you said you've worked in investment for a long time. And uh, I'm curious, just uh, in terms of this particular aspect, what is it that drew you to it? I, you know, it's funny. I never really planned on a career in investing. Um, but I think I got my appetite for risk from when I started working in the casinos when I was 19. <laughs> um, you know how most people will work in restaurants, you know, to put themselves through school. I uh, worked in casinos instead. What were and you doing in a casino? I, I was a croupier. I was a dealer. So I spent uh, probably the better part of a decade um, or more, <laughs> 10, 12 years as a casino dealer here, but also uh, on Princess Cruises. So kind of traveling around the world, working on the cruise ships, dealing blackjack, roulette, baccarat, craps, you know, um, you name it. And so that's where I really got an appreciation for uh, risk and reward and human behavior when it comes to investing. It was funny because my first degree was in uh, psychology and science and behave, particularly neuro, neuropsychology and behavioral. And there was a lot of stuff we were studying in behavioral psychology that I was actually seeing play out in real life in the casinos, you know, random schedules of reinforcement and persistent behavior. And it was just fascinating because it's like a microcosm uh, of psychology and human behavior. And so, you know, to me that I've always been a student of human behavior. I think the, uh, there's a, well, there's, I mean, if, if I look back to when I was a kid and growing up, you know, influencing people, um, and getting them to like me was very important because I was kind of a bit of a runt and a bit of a nerd. And if you, you know, weren't careful, you could easily get picked on and bullied. And so I always tried to make people laugh, figure out, you know, how could I get this person to have at least not want to beat me up uh, in, <laughs> in elementary school. But really, when you look back, you know, that that kind of led me to just be a student of behavior, of of, uh, of human behavior my whole life. So fast forward into the casino industry, you know, that's kind of what led me to travel around the world, um, really understand, you know, odds and, um, uh, like I said, risk and reward. And then I wound up getting into commercial real estate when I finished working on the cruise ships. Uh, you know, you can't really do that forever as a career. It was fun for a few years, but I turned 30. And, um, you know, my 30th birthday, I was drinking red wine out of a paper bag, uh, a bottle in a paper bag in the, in the, in the, uh, in the hallway, as you do. So <laughs> I think to myself, it's probably time to get moving with my career. 
I came home and wound up getting into a job with a commercial real estate brokerage and learning to do real estate deals. So sales, uh, leasing and investment. Um, and it was a great apprenticeship that taught me, you know, when you're learning to work on commission, uh, you pay attention. And it was an industry that was very humbling. You know, no matter how smart you think you are, uh, when you have to, you know, sell and, and work on commissions, um, you realize how much you don't know. Right. Hmm. And because there's no hiding it. If you're not earning, you're not earning. There's, and that is something I started learning about investment and finance and that I enjoyed was there's no hiding your performance, right? Either, you know, you made the right call or you didn't call it gambling, you know, maybe again, uh, at that, which echoes back to my time in the casino industry, but I like to analyze something and make a bet on it to see if I'm right, because it's quantifiable, right? If you're right, you made money. And if you're not, well, you didn't. So it's generally a pretty binary outcome in that respect. Um, but then, yeah, it was just, it was just kind of like a series of events that, I think followed the economy and followed my, I guess my personality. And I look back and I realize that, you know, I, I change jobs every three years or so. And I think this is, a, you know, something that um, is quite foreign to a lot of uh, people in my generation um, as a Gen Xer and, and, and older. Uh, a lot of my friends, you know, spend five, eight, 10 years in one job where they continue to go up, climb the corporate ladder. But for me, every time I felt like, okay, I've grown as much as I can here, right? And I, uh, I, things were kind of starting to peak out in terms of things. I, I have a short attention span. And so um, I would move on. I would move on to the next opportunity, right? And I was never afraid to do that because I started, what I started doing was building up this skill of being able to turn numbers into a story, uh, which is essentially what financial analysis is. You can do all of the financial analysis that you want, and run all the ratios. But if you can't turn that into a narrative and get someone to do something with that information, then you've pretty much failed as an analyst, right? What's the point of analyzing numbers if you can't come up with some sort of um, plan of action, right? And so that just kind of led me to, um, you know, I mean, I'm going to run through it. I was in commercial real estate, brokerage, and private sector. And then in 2008, Right, we had the the Great Recession, the Great Financial mm -hmm. Crisis. Uh, so that was not a great time to be working on commissions, and all the projects I was working on fell apart. And there was an opening at the federal government, and I'd done a deal with Public Works. And so um, they, one of the leasing agents there, said, "Hey, we have a position opening up, um, you know, in a hiring pool. You should, why don't you come and apply?" So I did. And so they were kind of expecting my name to come in there. And what they wanted was somebody with private sector experience to come in, you know, to work on the real estate team. So I eventually did get the job there and worked for a couple of years in what's called the owner, what was then called the owner investor group, which was kind of like the, the group that oversaw the ownership and investment in and usage of real estate assets for, uh, for the federal government. So I was part of the Western Canadian uh, portfolio. Uh, great experience. And that's where I really started doing a lot more financial analysis. A couple of years in, anybody who works at the federal government will know you either learn French and move to Ottawa or you kind of peek out if you have any sort of, you know, ambition. Right. And I, you know, I, I already speak Cantonese. I wasn't really keen on, you know, immersing myself and learning another language uh, beyond what I had uh, learned in school. Um, so I decided to go back and do my MBA. And, you know, I, I wanted to get some more depth in finance. And so I applied and 
part of the application process, you have to write a letter, right? Uh, saying, why do you want to do your MBA? Um, what do you think you could do for your career? So you got to do a bit of research. So drawing on my cold calling skills from my real estate days, I, lit I literally just looked up and phoned up the VP of real estate at AIMCO, the Alberta Investment Management Corporation. So big pension fund, institutional. This is kind of like, you know, the major leagues of our industry, right? These are the kind of guys that I was always trying to get in front of to sell, you know, real estate too. And uh, Michael was very gracious. He was a little bit um, taken aback, senior VP, because he was, this came out of left field for him. Most, most, most of the time people were calling him, they're trying to sell him something. Right. Right. Uh, but I said, I'm Arden Shea, I'm with Public Works. And can I take you for coffee? And just I'm doing some research to um, do an application for my MBA. And so, yeah, I, I'm just wondering if I could chat with you for 20, 30 minutes. And so finally, we managed to, to set up a time. We went and had coffee and uh, turned it to an hour long conversation. And Michael said, I've got a position open. You know, do you need to, you know, finish your MBA before you work for an institution? And so, of course, I was like, well, I'm not not looking for a job right now, uh, but I'll, I'll consider it. Um, but as soon as I went home, I fired in that resume. <laughs> right? um, and again, I mean, it wasn't a sure thing, but, you know, now he knew who I was and was looking for my application. Um, fast forward several months later, I got the job and, um, you know, maintain a really good relationship with my former manager. I've always tried to do that, maintain a good relationship with anybody I've worked for and, you know, maintain that network. Um, and the moral of that story will come into play shortly. <laughs> but at AIMCO, I spent a few years in the real estate group, uh, you know, actually doing full on um, investment management and really working in the finance industry that, you know, my, my time at AIMCO, I think really cemented me as an investment professional with my the experience. I mean, I underwrote over a billion dollars in transactions, learned how funds work, learned how the pension industry works, um, and really got to apply my finance degree, right? And um, the blessing and curse of doing an MBA is that once you're done, you know, you, you're used to thinking your horizon is at a certain level, but then suddenly you finish your MBA and you think, oh, my horizon is even higher than that, and you get kind of itchy feet. And so I went over to a different group, the Responsible Investing Group, started working in public equities, which led me to actually leaving AIMCO and then working for a smaller boutique investment firm here uh, named Cube Investment Management. Uh, spent some time there as a, you know, working on uh, investing in uh, the stock market. Um, and then there was a bit of a restructure. Uh, I, I mean, you know, the, the owner, I have a lot of respect for him. And, you know, we had a good talk. And, um, you know, I mentioned this uh, at the panel, but, you know, he gave me a pretty decent severance package, which bought me a bit of time. But the same day that I was laid off, I was having lunch with my former boss at Public Works, right? So, Ben, so keep in mind, I've it's been four-ish years since I left, right? Uh, probably more, actually. Um, so I was having lunch with Ben, and I said, Ben, I just got laid off. First time in my career. And Ben says, well, if you're looking for a place to, to hide out for a little bit, I can bring you back on a, um, I can't remember the name of the term, but like a temporary short-term contract uh, because I'd already been there in the, you know, in the job and they wouldn't have to run a competition. So boom, I've got a three-month gig doing my old job at the same pay. 
Uh, in fact, when I showed up at work, um, there was a box with my name on it with my files from when I had left years before because <laughs> some of these projects go on for a long, they're ongoing, right? Um, yeah. And so that was, you know, that bought me some time. Mm-hmm. And um, through my networks, I managed to apply for a job. Um, and I thought, let's try something different. I wasn't sure where I wanted to go, right? If I wanted to, you know, I was kind of getting tired of the investment management uh, thing and wasn't sure if I was going to go back to real estate. Um, but it was comforting to know that I had a place at the, you know, at, at public works if I wanted to to go back and, and, and apply. Um, but then I got a job at the University of Alberta managing the Venture Mentoring Service, an entrepreneur mentorship program, which was an amazing turn of events for me because it it opened up my network even more than I had before, right? Um, and uh, exposed me to the startup world, exposed me to tech companies. And uh, I actually, eventually the opportunity came up with Yale Town Partners to manage um, one of their funds, the one that I manage now. And because I knew the guys uh, involved in the fund um, through the VMS community, because there's also a program in Calgary, uh, you know, they had asked if I'd be interested in putting my name, you know, in the in in the ring because um, they were looking for a new manager. So I applied, and again, few months same similar story. A few months later, I got the job, and I've been there ever since. And so it's it's like this. I I like to say I fell into this by accident, right? But it was purposefully a purposefully designed accident. Yeah, it to me it sounds like putting together a puzzle. Uh, with just random pieces and then having it look like what it what, what it should have looked like, right? Like, you know, if you, and this happens so often when people talk about career journeys, it kind of seems super logical in retrospect. But if you follow it linearly from start to finish, it's, it seems like random, right? It's just different movements. So oh, I wanted to make a change and I did, um, you know, but for you, you know, you're able to, I mean, maybe it's that storytelling, like putting a story to numbers and putting a story to a career journey. You're, you're able to see that connective tissue between each move and why each move makes sense. So. And that was important too, as I, at each successive job interview, because you have to tell the story of how did you get here? You know, what, what motivated you to change jobs every three years? So I can't just be like, well, I got bored, my feet got itchy, and then I applied mm-hmm. and I got the job. That's only going to get you so far. And so I did spend some time in, you know, kind of thinking about, okay, what is my story here, right? But that didn't happen off the bat. Like you said, uh, you know, for all the, the uh, math nerds out there, I like to see life is a stochastic model, right? It only makes sense looking backwards. Um, but, you know, going forwards, it's all random, right? And I think the lesson here for any of our listeners is, is that's okay. You know, that's okay. But what the important thing I would say is to number one, be mindful of the story you're building, you know, what's carrying you through? What's the thread that's kind of carrying you through each job, right? Uh, and what are you looking for? A great mentor of mine once said, it's more important to think about there's a difference between running towards something and running away from something. So to say, I left this job because, you know, that next part is very important. Is it because you were seeking more of a challenge and developing your skills? Or is it because you were bored and couldn't stand the job you were there before? Both can be true. One makes a better story than the other, right? Um, and the other one is to maintain your networks because you just never know. Like I've gotten, you made a, an interesting comment that I hadn't realized uh, until you'd said it uh, when we were at the uh, at, at oh, the, the panel. If on the panel, yeah. And you said, you know, are you just you seem to be able to just have people call you up and ask you if you want the job. 
and I realized, you know, for, for most of my career after my first job or two, like, you know, those beginner jobs that you have, I have never gotten a job by just firing in a resume cold. It was always through my networks and someone who knew me, even if I had to put in an application, they were expecting it, right? They knew who was applying and, and that they wanted, you know, to at least interview me. Yeah. And I think that goes back to your ability, you know, for me, it was a really interesting comment when you said um, that, you know, you you try to keep these good relations and that goes back to, you know, uh, being being smaller and, and being a bit of a nerd and you don't, you know, you don't want to get beat up. So <laughs> you want oh, people yeah. to like you. But that then, you know, from that grew this ability to be a great networker, to build good relations. And part of doing a good job is being remembered for good reasons. Not and and your I, I don't think work is the thing that speaks for itself all the time. You need to be uh you need to be someone who people like to work with. Yeah. No, and I think that's kind of like the the bigger theme of turning a bug into a feature, as we mm. call it in software, right? Um, is to take that insecurity that I had as as a child, uh, you know. Let's face. I mean, I was, uh, you know, one of the only Chinese kids in school uh, growing up in the '70s and '80s in the North End. Um, it wasn't easy. I mean, quite frankly, right? And um, there was a lot of insecurity on my part. And so, turning that insecurity into an ability to read people and understand, okay, what what will make this person comfortable around me, right? And then eventually turning that into, okay, you know, I, I've, I've really developed some strong networking skills because I have a personality that is kind of like, actually a friend of mine once described to me, she goes, you have like a bartender personality. People just want to open up to That's you. Perfect. You're, good. you're good at taking care of them. You know, you're good at listening. Uh, I thought, oh, well, okay. That's, that's an interesting superpower to have, but yeah, I mean, if you become the kind of person that people want to open up to and that, you know, want to, to, um, see consolation from or to talk to, that's a great way to, to, to be, to be known. Yeah. Someone once told me that, um, if you want to have a, a conversation with someone, if you want to get someone to talk to you, ask them for advice. It's a great mm -hmm. way to get them to open up. And I think listening more than you talk is, is also uh, a great way to, to, you know, people like to share their stories. Um, yep. one thing I was thinking of, and I do, I want to get to this because I think it's something that people struggle with. You said you developed the the skills to do cold calling, or at least you did it a lot in your real estate days. Mm -hmm. Was it something that came naturally to you, or did, did you really have to work on it? Because I think a lot of people are terrified of cold calling. Oh, absolutely. That was not a natural thing. I have to think, so the guy that trained me, right, the partner at Turo Realty that trained me, Herman G., uh, who passed away a few years ago. He was a great mentor uh, of mine. And I was very lucky because he's he was Chinese and he understood a lot of the cultural barriers that I was going to have to learning how to cold call because he understood that for, for Asian people, we're brought up to just work hard, keep your head down, don't rock the boat. You don't ask for the business. Your work should speak for itself. And he said, you will never sell that way. And he got me to recognize that and said, if you're uncomfortable, that's good. That means you're doing the right thing. And so he took me out and he trained me, right? And it, like literally the first day I was at work, he put a phone book on the desk and he said, pick a letter, start calling, wow. right? And, um, you know, he did a lot of things with me that got me to break out of that. And he taught me how to actually uh, feel confident by coming up in, coming in there with a value proposition. Um so, okay, here's a little bit of advice I can offer for networking for, for students. Because mm -hmm. often students will ask me, I have nothing to offer. 
Uh, and I said, there's kind of two types of networking or phases you can go through, right? The first I call is kind of like the naive networker, somebody who's new at something. Well, what you have to offer is your curiosity. And what you said earlier, Matt, about the best way to get to talk to somebody is to ask them for their advice. Perfect. As a student, you can play that card and you can say, I'm studying this area. I'm learning more about this. Can I? And you know what? Take them for a coffee. Um, yeah, show them some gratitude. It costs a couple of bucks, but hey, this is your career. So you're investing in yourself. And you know, talk to that person about them and ask them about and learn and really listen. Don't go in there with the expectation of, you know, I, I, I'm here to get something from this person. It's, uh, or, you know, in terms of a career, you really, there just to learn because what happens is, um, I'll make the analogy in, in real estate cold calling. So what Herman taught me was, so you, let's say I wanted to explore the, learn about the roofing industry, right? He says, and I did this. He says, you go to the first guy and you say, hey, I am so-and-so from this realty. I'm new, and but you know, I'm trying to learn about this industry because I really want to serve it. And I love this business and I want to, or this industry, and I want to be around for a while. Can I just spend 20 minutes with you learning a little bit about what you do in the industry? And you do that for two, three, four businesses, CEOs, and a lot of especially small businesses, um, if they have the time, right? Um, they're very happy to talk about their business. As like you said, people love to share their stories. Well, by the time you get to that fifth or sixth business, you may know more about the industry and their competitors than they do. Hmm. Right. You just start picking up, you know, uh, information, building on that library. So if you decide you want to learn about the artificial intelligence industry, for example, and you start talking to a few people and asking the right questions, by the time you hit your fourth, fifth, sixth person, You've got yourself an education, a you know, a working education is what I'll call it, uh, on the industry, and you'll sound like you've actually know what you do. A friend of mine said that you know I have this weird superpower to be in an industry for a short amount of time, and within like three to four months, sound like I've been in it for years, hmm. and I've just learned that technique. So that's kind of like what I call like that naive, you know, newer uh, networker, right? But then as you grow and advance, now you become somebody who knows people. And then connects people. And that's another thing that you can offer is then, you know, is to be able to say, hey, I have somebody that might, you know, I heard you're hiring for an analyst. I just met this student uh, that's, you know, really great at financial analysis. And I think he could help. Would you like an introduction? Right. You start doing those. People start coming to you because they know that you know people. And to me, that's, you know, two very solid ways that you can network. Anybody can do. Yeah, uh, you know, and along the way, you're building up a reputation, right? Uh, you're you're meeting all these people, and they're thinking, "Hey, here's a person who's interested. Here's a person who wants to improve themselves." Um, so I see yeah. what you mean about how the the connector thing can come into play too, because people might start connecting you if they if they meet you and think you're an upstart like that as well. Networking starts with giving. That's hmm. the bottom line. The best networkers uh, that I've learned from and observed are there to give to others. And that's how they become really well known. Because now, anytime that person calls, you're not thinking, oh, what does he want from me? You're thinking, oh, what does he have for me? Well, the last thing I want to get uh, at in talking to you, because it struck me too from the panel when you were talking about making moves and, you know, not being afraid to to change maybe your your career path or or back out of something and and move along. Because I do think, I think for most people, that's actually really scary as well. What is it? You know, what is it that goes on for you when, you, when you're making a change? Um, is it scary for you? Or are you always just like, ah, nah, I like to make change and I, I don't worry about it? And, and if it is scary, how do you overcome that? 
Uh, you know, uncertainty and change are always scary. No mm-hmm. question about it. But I try to ask myself a couple of questions, right? The one is, what's my worst case scenario? Right? What's the worst that'll happen if I apply for this job? A lot of people I find stress out just the application because they're already thinking it through, right? Like, what if this? What if that? I can't do this. I can't. There's no decision to make until an offer has been made. You have nothing to lose up until the point somebody actually makes you an offer. So put yourself in a position where you have to make a decision, right? A real decision, not a hypothetical one. And I think it starts with there's most of my jobs, you know, when I changed jobs, didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm done with this one. Uh, I'm going to apply somewhere. The process usually started eight to 12 months ahead of time. And that involved networking, it involved looking at jobs, it involved so that by the time I got to it, I had a reasonable expectation that I would not be unemployed for long, right? Between jobs, it takes some preparation. But I think that the, the pressure is. I mean, I get it. People have mortgages, they have families, they have you know spouses that are like, well, you can't quit this job you have. But I think a lot of us, that's in our head. You know, I mean, when you think about what the opportunity is, or they think oh, I've put in 10 years into this business, you know, and that's a sunk cost fallacy, right? You're throwing good money after bad. It's like that's the past. You know, if you have no more future at this company, despite the last 10 years, um, you're better off moving even laterally for more upside. So that's another question I ask myself. What do I want out of this next move? What's the potential? What can I get out of it that will help me grow in my profession? And when you train yourself to ask yourself those questions, it makes it easier. The mindset thing is interesting too. And it reminds me, and I've thought about this a lot in terms of careers. I once wrote a story. uh, It was called How to Skate Like Connor McDavid. And it was all this like looking into what goes into making McDavid, this incredible uh, sports performer um, from like, you know, his muscle types to his genetics to his practice and whatever. And I talked to a sports psychologist and I was like, how does someone like Connor McDavid go on the ice every day knowing that all all the people on the other team would like to hurt him? They'd all want to like injure him because I don't know if I can do it. And they said, top tier athletes, top performers don't think in terms of bad things are going to happen to me. They think I'm going to be successful. They are. Mm -hmm. So like it's the difference between being someone who loves to win or someone who hates to lose, right? And they all love to win. I think it's really hard to put yourself in that mindset when it comes to change of like, what's the really good thing that I could get out of this that I will go for? Um, And uh, I, I just think it's kind of fascinating in terms of like thinking about making these moves and what your mindset can be and trying to adjust so that you you make the changes that you want to make. It is a growth mindset. And I think the best way I put it for security, right, for people who worry about security. Uh, and I said this to my, my you know, my dad, my, my parents were nurses and they, you know, spent their entire careers in government type jobs, losses, you know, that quote unquote security. But I said, you know, even government workers can get laid off. We've seen that happen a couple of times in the last, you know, a couple of economic cycles. But I said, my job security comes from a number of things. One, my network. And two, having a developed, a really valuable set of skills in the market, right? That people um, people value, right? And so that to me is my security. I mean, worst case scenario, I can always go deal cards. Of course. <laughs> Get back on the cruise ships. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you said you were good at producing sound bites. So we'll put that to the test with the lightning oh, round. We, we, we ask these questions to everyone. Also, our lightning round is brought to you by uh, our affinity partner, TD Canada Trust. Um, 
The first question, have you ever been fired? I have once, like I mentioned from Q, I was, I was let go. Uh, it was a layoff. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily fired, but it was classified as a layoff. When you were a kid, what did you want to do when you grew up? I wanted to be Indiana Jones. Wow. It's, they're coming yep. back. Do you know they're making another movie? Yes, I saw that. Number five. Uh, but adventure, right? That's what I've, I've always wanted in life. What's something that you wish people knew about your job or something that's misunderstood about what you do now? Something that's misunderstood about what it's not at all glamorous. Hmm. Not all um, Dragon's Den, huh? It's not all Dragon's Den. It's not all, you know, meeting entrepreneurs and writing big checks or anything like that. There's a lot of administrative work when it comes to managing a fund. So it's not as glamorous as a lot of people may think. What advice do you have for someone who feels like they're in a career rut, like they're stuck? Um, Informational interviews. Find people who are doing different things. Take them out for a coffee or have lunch and learn about them. Get curious. You never know it'll spark something. What's your favorite thing about your job? Freedom. I have control over my time. And that's not to say that I slack, but I have control of my time. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself just after you graduated, what would you say to yourself? Uh, don't invest in Briex. Put it into <laughs> Apple. <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> in respect to your education or your career path, do you? Is there anything that you wish you had done? Uh in my career path, anything I wish I would have done, I. I no mm-hmm. no it's all happened no as regrets it I have no regrets no no well thank you so much for uh, chatting with me I feel like we could have just kept going I would have talked for hours but it was it was a treat I <laughs> uh, really appreciate you thanks Arden no my pleasure my pleasure thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job and a special thanks to our guest Arden Che for talking to us about his career. And as always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca sboard. It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's all for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time. <laughs>